0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices.
1: Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Leonarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Thea. How are you doing? I am well. It's a while, I think, since I've asked you what you're reading, so that that's what I'd like to know now.
2: Okay. This is like putting in a, a book report. Um, <laughs> what I have been reading, Richard Powers, I read The Overstory and Bewilderment. Do you read them um, back to back? Yeah, just about because I loved the overstory so much. I then basically went straight onto bewilderment. Um and I thought they were very, very powerful, particularly the overstory actually. And I would think that. the
1: kind of the cumulative effect of reading them back to back like that as well, because he's got such a kind of a, a total vision, hasn't he?
2: Yes, yes, exactly. It's a total vision and it's also it's all very kind of climate changey. I mean, it was partly because this was in the air, you know, mm-hmm. anyway. And so having read The Overstory, which is very long, and then Bewilderment back to back, so that's about the... I mean, The Overstory, broadly, is about kind of trees, their role on the planet, and how many of them are being cut down and all that stuff. But trees also as individuals, you know, not just, oh, no, a tree got cut down. He really goes into um, a lot of detail and emotion about it, actually. And then um, Bewilderment, the thing that's being lost is biodiversity um and it's uh, you, you you feel the pain of it um so that was all a bit overwhelming it's all very good I think but I did have to have a bit of a rest as it were after that um and now I'm reading Pachinko by Min Jin Lee oh and I can't, great I can't tell you why I just saw it and thought well that sounds interesting
1: so many people have recommended it to me my have dad good. foremost among them in fact no I've heard it's, it's fantastic.
2: Yeah, I just, uh, I mean, it's its years old, I think. It's like four or five years old. Mm. I just saw it, and, um, and I thought it looked interesting. And so far, it is. How about you, anyway? What have you been reading?
1: I have been reading, well, most recently, I've been reading some essays um, by Anne Patchett. I don't know if it's out yet. It's called um, These Precious Days, and it's either out already or coming soon. Um, and... I was just reading one of them, and, and she writes about how, how when she's writing fiction, when she first started writing fiction, she developed this fear of of death because she'd be writing a novel, and at a certain point, she she just think, oh God, if if I go under a bus tomorrow, all of these lives I'm carrying in me will will go with me. They'll you know they'll die before they get the chance to realize their their potential, and so she started to become quite kind of. Caught up by this this fear of death, every time she'd start writing a novel or a short story or whatever, she'd there'd be a moment at which she'd panic about death. The kind of
2: responsibility for the yeah for the a responsibility,
1: the burden, the kind of the duty owed to these lives that she had, you know, conjured up from nothing, I suppose. um And so she she says about how during the pandemic, when you know with with death at the door. Um, and on the news and on the radio and, and so on and so forth, um, she just felt she couldn't write fiction, um, and she she felt that by writing essays, it, it, the feeling was different. She didn't feel that burden because uh, facts and ideas. She says, if she were to go under that bus or or, 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 or die in any other way, uh, someone else could pick up that job uh, and, and carry carry it on for her. It just made me think about how mm. you know different times call for different uh different forms um yeah so I've just been reading that and then there's a rather lovely one about her her three different dads um her her mum married three times and so at different stages in her life she had her 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 biological father and then a stepfather and then a stepfather as an adult Um, and the different relationships that she has with them and and how she remembers them and what they each brought to her life it's rather lovely Sounds jolly interesting. Yes, well, completely different to what we will be talking about on this week's show. Coming up, uh, we have an eye-opening journey through food and field as we explore some of the world's rarest and most endangered foods and how sustainable ecologically and economically is book selling. But first, Lucy, over to you. Yes, let's start with a quote. The originative
2: intellectual worker is not a normal human being and does not lead nor desire to lead a normal human life. He wants to lead a supernormal life. So says H.G. Wells in the opening to his experiment in autobiography. And you could argue that the indefatigable Wells did lead a pretty supernormal life, though not perhaps quite as cerebral as he intends in this passage, at least until he was around 45. And then... Well, not so much. Michael Sherborne, a Wells biographer himself, has written about him for us, taking in Claire Tomlin's new biography of Wells's early life and J.S. Barnes' follow-up to Wells's gruesome and upsetting story, The Island of Dr. Moreau. We're delighted that Michael's here to talk to us today. Michael, many thanks for joining us. You start your piece brilliantly by saying, the life of H.G. Wells makes for a roller coaster of a narrative until it doesn't, Can you unpack that for us a little bit,
3: Yes, I'm probably exaggerating slightly there uh, in the interest of rhetoric, because I actually think that Wells' whole life is interesting, including the second half. But there's certainly a a gear change occurs around 1911, and you you see this in any biography of Wells. I suppose it's true of any public figure, whether it's a pop singer or a sportsman or or, or a novelist, that the compelling bit is the bit where they are making their way, uh, fighting their way, From obscurity to fame, once they have found themselves and and got their career going, it becomes a little bit samey, doesn't it? I remember someone saying to me once they'd read the first biography of The Beatles that came out and they really enjoyed their struggles. Once they became famous, they lost interest in it. And I think that's often the case. With Wells, his early years are a real roller coaster. Um, He left school when he was 13, which is very unusual for an author in those days, particularly. I think most writers in the late 19th, early 20th century went to boarding school in Oxbridge. And you know, Wells left school at 13 and was apprenticed to various jobs, managed to fight his way out into education, went to university, then lost interest, dropped out, went back into teaching, got beaten up on the sports field, hemorrhaged, almost died numerous times, fought his way back again, um, Became successful, more hemorrhages, and then finally he ran off from his wife with one of his students, reknotted himself as a writer, and became hugely famous. So it's a real roller coaster.
2: There are many strands to his sort of uh, yeah. adventures, aren't yeah. there? There's the there's the amazing inventiveness of the science fiction which he sort of seemed to single handedly create and set in motion. There's his comic novels, his social and political aims and work his public status, as you say, as an intellectual, and his turbulent personal life.
3: Yes. When you get to about the age of 45, you do have this gear change where you you move away from the, the fiction, because he's written most of the famous fiction by then, and you look more at the private life and the, the intellectual side. Um, what Claire Tomlin has done, uh, in some ways very sensibly, is simply stopped at that point and said, what interests me is the the creative writer, although there are some good novels still, in the can, you know, at the F45. Basically, he's done most of the work by that point, and that's quite a good place to come to a halt.
1: You mentioned 1911, and I'm trying mm. to do the mental arithmetic, but was that when he was 45? What was it that that happened in 1911 that, that is responsible for this gear change?
3: That's an interesting question. I think um, partly he'd used up his formative experiences in his fiction. Uh, the last major famous book he wrote, well, Next to last famous book he wrote was The New Machiavelli, which draws on his experiences hanging out with politicians. He did then do Mr. Brittling Sees It Through About the First World War, which is also a remarkable book. Um, but basically, he'd used up all his formative experiences by then, and I think he, he began to repeat himself with more and more commentary and less and less vividness in the presentation. Also, he had run off with um, Amber Reeves to France, and uh, embarked on a, a new life with her. But, of course, he was too famous to get away with it by that point. He had to come back to his wife and family and uh, and drop the Amber Rees connection. And that, again, perhaps made him feel that he he had shot his bolt, really, in terms of his um, ability to reinvent himself and start a new life. And he seemed to settle down to a, a more consistent lifestyle after 1911
2: he appears from this distance i was mm-hmm. reading some of the some of his proclamations i think you you mentioned this one in the in the piece no god no king no nationality it yes. it's, that sounds pretty revolutionary today but he, he was taken very seriously wasn't he as a political thinker and an intellectual
3: yes um he's been through various phases and at one point he was he stopped being regarded seriously he's come back to a degree um Yes, I suppose because he came from a lower-class background compared to all the other writers of his day, um, he was able to really dazzle them with his upward mobility. He was able to say, I know what it's like to be a working-class person, I know what it's like to be an engineer and a scientist. And, of course, all these uh, arts graduates, politicians, were were very taken aback by his um, apparent knowledgeability, I think.
2: But also the, the political message he pushed... Um, appear to have become more radical with time rather than less. He ends um, up yeah. taking
1: the Fabian Society to task, doesn't he?
3: Oh yes, he 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 felt the Fabians, I think, were a waste of opportunity. They they were the one big middle class uh, socialist organisation. He wanted them to get out there and agitate and cause upheaval and bring. Um, Doctors and scientists over to socialism, not just uh, working people. Ross wasn't against, you know, trade unions, but he, he thought they were doing their job and someone needed to get out and recruit the middle class onto socialism as well. Rawls didn't like the, the Marxist idea of um, socialism being about class conflict. I mean, he wanted the classes to come together to create a more efficient society. Claire Tomlin talks about Wells being an atheist. I, I don't think Wells was ever much of an atheist. He had some very strange religious views, but I, I think there was always a very uh, strong evangelical streak in his thinking.
1: There's a kind of a wild simultaneity about so much when it comes to him. I mean, mm-hmm. even just thinking about the novels, I'm familiar with some of them, but not really their chronology. So I think I'd always sort of assumed that he'd started out writing uh social no- novels like uh Anne veronica and then moved on to the grander science fiction uh like war of the worlds which then made his name but it seems all the more impressive really that he was in fact juggling all of these genres all of these things all of these ideas all at the same time
3: he actually begins by writing his best books a bit like *Austin Wells*, his, his his namesake Orson wells that way of course he knew um he began with the time machines his best book and then he worked his way down to uh, some of the later novels um but he actually wrote these extraordinary science fiction books in the space of four or five years, uh, plus the short stories, plus everything else he was writing. And he, he really they came to him so easily, I think, that he didn't quite value them. He wanted to move on to what he saw as more substantial, uh, socially engaged books like Anne Veronica.
2: You say that Claire Tomlin in in her book, she deals with the um, what we were talking about before the gear change, the perceived imbalance Mm. of eventfulness in his life by just sort of going, "Okay, I'm only going to do basically until he's 45. How was the book up until then? Do
3: you agree with her assessment of him? I think on the whole, I do, yes. I mean, I, I can quibble about a lot of the details. Being a biographer myself, I can see all, all kind of small things I, I would quibble about. But I, I think actually she does a very good job um, in taking us through his life very briskly with a very vivid picture of the kind of person he was. I think one of the strengths of her book is that she sees him as somebody herself who has known very many writers and you know, hung out with authors over the years. She pictures him as an author, the kind of man he would have been to meet, uh, whereas most of his biographers see him as a kind of uh, a verbal construct on the page or a set of ideas. I think she sees him very much as a personality and that comes across very goodly in her writing. She does um, seem to
1: have a, a real, sometimes perhaps distorting warmth for him.
3: Yeah, I think she is very soft on him. She's very lenient <laughs> towards him in many ways, um, particularly given the, uh, the present age um, I was looking through the book again, checking this out. She does bring up all the issues you would expect her to. Um, one of the most notorious things Wells did was his first big book of non-fiction called Anticipations, which is a very good book in many ways. It has a, a brilliant section on, on the European Union, written in 1900, you know, which is somewhat ahead of the the events. Um, but he also, towards the end, has a passage of social Darwinism, which is quite fascistic. And that um, has caused a lot of controversy over the years and has put many people off wells. And she does mention it, but she sails over it fairly quickly, I think, whereas many people would have spent more time on that. Um, his promiscuity, she seems to be quite OK with, as she was <laughs> with, with some of Samuel Pepys's goings on. You know, I think she rather likes these bad boys of literature. Um, <laughs> I was talking about his turbulent
2: personal life I mean basically he had tons and tons of affairs and as you say ran off with people much younger and caused a scandal and it left a trail of at best you can say kind of mess and disruption didn't it it seems like he wanted to fulfill himself didn't he after was it was it that after all these hemorrhages he wanted to get out and do what he wanted to do he didn't want anything to get in the way of what he wanted but he didn't seem greatly to take into account the feelings of others is that is that a fair assessment
3: Well, that's probably slightly mean. (laughs) I I, I would tend to agree with that. But I think a lot of the people he was involved with, certainly the women, retained a positive view of him, not all of them. Um, Mm. One of his greatest loves was a woman called Odette Kern, who was a very uh, vociferous lady who packed a gun and and he certainly got on the wrong side of her. But I I think um, many of the ladies look look back on their affairs with him with great affection and, and, and had no problem with them.
2: He was open about it wasn 't he it wasn 't that he, was, he he was kind of secretive about it he was he was open, so maybe that it was open as
3: it could be in those days and he wrote it all up and published it after his death you know so uh, it 's something that he himself was was quite happy to see posterity know about i think uh, it 's it's also worth bearing in mind because we, I, I think we all sympathize with his wife on this one. Who had a, a, a terrible row to hoe, really. But it is probably fair to say that he didn't want to marry in the first place, neither did she. They, they, they began by living in sin and they only married because of the problems that caused them with servants and neighbours turning shirty on them. You know? So it was always an open marriage in a sense.
2: Yes, because he wanted to, to publish that account of of his affairs called H.G. Mm. Wells in Love. He wanted to publish it posthumously, didn't he, along with Experiment in Autobiography. I was reading a little bit of Experiment in Autobiography. It seems mm. to be remarkable in, in in his assessment of himself. He starts off by talking about himself and his sort of persona and his personality. And then he says, right, and now how about the, uh, the physical, you know, how about the body and the brain? And he doesn't. He's, he basically says, I don't think I've got a particularly good brain, really nothing special, I haven't got a very good constitution, you know, and he goes on to, to, to list how sort of very ordinary he is, which in, in itself is an extraordinary thing to do, I think.
3: It is, and he always claimed that his love life was nothing special in the sense he simply had more opportunity than other men, uh, but he, he liked to portray himself as an everyman, yeah, at the same time, he was a very remarkable person. I think he, he knew he was a remarkable person. There's just a kind of a dialectic going on there all the time.
1: can't help but feel the fact that he wanted to publish um, these books, especially H.G. Wells and Love, posthumously is, is a bit of a cop-out.
3: <laughs> well, he couldn't have published them. They'd have just been too libelous. He'd have been in jail forever. Um, <laughs> it is said, uh, probably, truly, that well, the reason he had to abandon the affair with Amber Reeves was that her husband found people willing to testify that um, Anne Veronica was based on his wife and that uh, uh, that would then be a libelous portrait. And there was unlimited amount of damage, I think, if, if you accused a, a married woman of being promiscuous. Wow. So I think there was limits to what he could write in his lifetime.
2: So he was going to um, sort of add that on to his autobiography. And talking of adding things on, I'm sorry, it's a really horrible link. And once I (laughs) thought of it, I couldn't stop myself. We do now have a sort of sequel to The Island of Dr. Moreau um, by J.S. Barnes, which you've also reviewed. Can you recap um, the original for us for people who don't? I don't know it. I just know the outlines of it.
3: It's about the um, scientist who is marooned at sea and he winds up on an island which has been uh, taken over by Another scientist, a very unpleasant scientist, called Dr Moreau, uh, who is trying to improve on evolution by taking animals and doing surgery on them. Um, He takes the knife to them without anaesthetic and hypnotises them and does various things to them and turns them into different kinds of people, all the time trying to produce something uh, superior to a human being. So the island is full of these monsters, uh, these pathetic monsters, but very dangerous monsters, um, and the only way that the monsters can cope with their situation is by taking Moreau as their god and worshipping him and creating their own religion. And the whole book is obviously, in many ways, um, a reworking of book four of Gulliver's Travels. It's a, a satire on religion and also on the, the bestiality and um, dark side of human nature. Very gruesome book. But I, I thought it was interesting you know, weird, but um, interesting. Yeah. Um, and so what does what does Barnes do with it? Well, he's done a very good job in many ways. There are quite a lot of these books where people have written sequels to Wells. Um, And where they normally go wrong, I think, is that they're a little bit too pretentious. Um, Wells manages to put a whole vision of life into these books. So it's a very simple adventure story. And yet the time machine is about living in a godless universe. Dr Moreau and the War of the Worlds are about living in a Darwinian universe and is able to communicate an enormous amount of, uh, of information about his view of life just through an adventure story. When other people try and do it, it always becomes pretentious and laboured and awkward and it goes on too long. I think Barnes has done a much more sensible thing. He's just trying to write a good yarn. And what he's done is kind of backed up into the Victorian period, 1877, um, slightly before the start of of, of Wells's book, when Moreau is still uh, in London in his early days, and then taken it forward and trying to, to, to develop the idea of Murrow's animals coming out of the island and being brought into civilization and then being incorporated into civilization and going forward into the, the 21st century. So it's a kind of alternative history where he uses Wells' ideas but for his own ends. And it's a success. It's a ripping yarn, is it? It is. I wouldn't say it was a, a, a great book. It's not in the same league as, as, as the Wells' books. Um, It's not one of those books that's going to change the world or I want it buried with you when you die or anything like that. But it's uh, it's a good page turner.
1: A lot of people encounter HG Wells when they're young and it's precisely Mm. that kind of pacey page turner uh, quality that they remember, you know, being really drawn into what's going to happen next. And maybe by by uh, by writing this in the way he has, Barnes has captured something of that.
3: Yes, I, I think a lot of people see the, the deeper stuff in Wells and they want to emulate that, but it's very hard. But Wells mm. has the appearance of being a simple author, but he isn't at all. I've never seen anyone do a, do a good impression of Wells' style, for example. You can do James, you can do Faulkner, you can do Joyce. You try and write like Wells. I mean, he's very difficult. It's almost a spoken style of, of English he uses. It's, it's, it's impossible to emulate, and, and you know, it's, it's for a mistake to try. And I think... To try and write like Wells is, is a much harder task than it looks. In fact, I think it's an impossible task. And Barnes very sensibly has thought, "No, I'm writing a page-turning yarn using some of Wells' ideas." And I think he's, I think Wells himself would have would have seen the merit of doing that.
1: When you're talking about how the life. Is is you know a roller coaster and then it, it sort of mm-hmm. slows down. And um, you say that those who attempt a full scale life are obliged to deliver summary after summary of forgotten <laughs> books uh, yes. like the Autocracy of Mister pa- uh, Parham and New Worlds for Old. And um, I was just wondering, I mean, are there any forgotten ones that you you think deserve to be rescued?
3: Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I'll start with Mister Brickling. it through, which I mentioned earlier, which is his. Uh, bestseller from the First World War, bestseller in England and America and Germany, unbelievably, during the war. There's a couple of books I actually wrote introductions for, which have been reprinted recently, so I've got to plug in for those. One is Mr. <laughs> Bletsworthy on Rampole Island. The other is Christina, Alberta's father. Both wonderful books from the 20s, which are forgotten. Um, other than that, I guess probably it's more than non-fiction that uh, is of interest. The Rights of Man is, is still a very... Um, interesting book recently reprinted with introduction by Ali Smith. That's a resounding yes, (laughs) there's
1: plenty. (laughs) Finally,
2: we can can see that Wells was a really fascinating character and um, many people are familiar with at least some of his ideas or the outlines of his ideas. Do you think this gets in the way now of people actually reading the books?
3: Um, I hope not. I, I think it's a shame that the comic novels are not more read. I think they're still very good. The science fiction is infinitely adaptable. You know, people are always making movies out of it. But I, I think um, perhaps Walsh is being remembered now as a science fiction writer and as a kind of political, socio-political agitator. And perhaps his abilities as a writer of comedy have been a bit overlooked. You know, Mr. Polly and Kips and Love, Mr. Lewisham, and Mills of Chance. And also his straight novel, Tono Bungay*, which is a wonderful book. And people, because of the ugly title, um, people don't read Tono Bungay*. It's, it's a wonderful book. I think actually the title is the plastic of Coca-Cola. People knew that they might be more interested. I, I didn't know that. No, yeah.
1: tell us more about
3: that. <laughs> yeah. so, Tamba Bange is a tonic. It's a slightly injurious rubbish. He describes it as it's, it's a tonic which is marketed and becomes hugely successful, and then it, it all collapses and, and, and the commercial empire goes down. But it is actually very like Coca-Cola, which was originally a tonic. Um, Coca-Cola had cocaine in. Tamba Bange has um, strychnine in, I believe. And it, it becomes a symbol for everything, really, for religion, for art, for everything people believe in that's going to let them down. It's a fascinatingly um, cynical and satirical and creative book about this product, which gets marketed and, and how people respond to it. It's also a hugely influential book. I mean, you check out The Great Gatsby, Osaya Tono Bungay, you'll see how closely um, Fitzgerald has taken all the ideas from those and reused them for his own ends and yet. The Great Gatsby, which in some ways I think is not as good a book, is very, very famous. And Tony Bungay, no one's ever heard of. I think Fitzgerald would have been shocked to to, to have found that out. But actually, a lot of what Fitzgerald does is actually derived from what Wells was doing. Uh, The whole plot structure is very similar. It is an interesting uh, unknown, unknown fact. I think.
2: Michael Sherborne, thank you very much for talking to us today.
1: still to come on the show is book selling sustainable and what do we stand to lose if we fail to farm and eat diversely keep listening if you want to hear about some fantastically clever plants that perhaps even hg wells couldn't have dreamt up and if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you will never miss an episode Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Now, before we turn to unsustainable food and farming practices, let's take a look closer to home. In this week's Backpage MB column, our writer asks, is the selling of books a sustainable business? We mean that adjective, they say, to be taken in both the ecological and the economic senses taken through some of the well-known ways in which Amazon which lest we forget started as a book selling company many moons ago uh, fails to pay the tax it should according to the magazine the ethical consumer of the six major tech companies Amazon has the and I quote poorest tax conduct which still sounds like a very polite way of putting it but um this business of ethical book buying is is one close to our hearts on this podcast isn't it Lucy?
2: It is, yeah. And we've talked a lot about uh, independent bookshops and tried to kind of talk about them and, you know, um, shout out to them and talk about uh, alternatives. Um, not that we're particularly trying to bash anyone, but we, we do want and need the, the business of books to be sustainable in every possible way. Um, the ethical consumer has uh, a thing that they call the Ethy Score which gives people points out of 20 awarded for good conduct in relation to environmental reporting, tax conduct, etc. The top three sellers uh, specialize in secondhand books, World of Books, Better World Books and Biblio. Uh, Next is Bookshop.org and The Guardian Bookshop. Um, And it's I do think it's interesting because it's I mean, we're in a very privileged position because we get books sent to us. Do you know what I mean? So so it's I can see that the appeal of 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 cheap books, if you if you if all you did was buy hardback books from an independent bookshop, that's very expensive and you might not have an independent bookshop near you, which is why, you know, you you would welcome um, cheaper books uh, able to get online. Um, but, you know, as 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 this report says that the, there are numerous, um, that, shall we say, issues with Amazon. Tax conduct, the way they treat their workers, the way they treat their authors, all sorts of things. The most um, ethical thing to do, I guess, um, is to borrow it from a library. <laughs> but then also, people need to sell books.
1: I suppose so, yeah, because I mean, that's the, one of the things that this Ethi score thing, I keep on thinking of that you'd kind of want like some kind of Ethi pen that you could stab people who aren't being quite ethical enough oh, and they'd become more ethical. <laughs> they'd become I magically think, more ethical I don't
2: think you should go around stabbing people with an pens
1: pen <laughs> but but one of one of the things that this Effie scored data also flags up is as you've said um the fact that on the question of environmental sustainability at least the only real or that you know the strongest option is to buy secondhand or yes to go to a library but mm. I mean that doesn't really do much for publishers let alone authors who you own make money from the sales of new books
2: exactly yeah it's a real it's a real conundrum I think um as to how you do it because as I say not everybody does live near I wonder it depends where you live also which country is going to bring us on to France isn't it who they behave very differently um but there are if you live in a great big country I mean if you live in America you you can't guarantee that in your town there is an independent bookshop just because it's mm. such a it's such a big place sometimes you have to drive
1: hundreds of miles to mm. to get stuff um and, and for for that reason I suppose it is it's 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 good that the ethical consumer um the, the magazine does point to a number of of online uh options that just that are more ethical than Amazon so one we've we've talked about quite a lot already on this show and we get no commission for this I should emphasize is um is bookshop.org um and and I mentioned this in part because well Lucy you mentioned it as as ranking quite highly in the Effie score uh thing but also weirdly out of the blue I got an email um from someone at bookshop.org today uh to point out that in in just one year and this week actually Mark's the first birthday of of bookshop. Um, But the site has in just one year generated more than 1.6 million pounds profit for nearly 500 of the the bookshops that are signed up to work with them. So that's money that goes to uh, independent bookshops. So even if you're not able to to go to one of those bookshops yourself, the money is redistributed to, to support them they uh, point out in this email rather puckishly that they launched during lockdown when um two thirds of book shopping was done online and uh this was while jeff bezos was busy trying to fly into space
2: well that they launched a bookshop while he was yeah looking. exactly well he wasn't looking he was just
1: too busy in his ridiculous uh he was too busy taking rocket. william shatner to space wasn't jeff bezos <laughs> exactly. who took
2: william? yeah i think it was yeah yeah possible. do do write in and tell me if i'm wrong um <laughs> But as I say, it also depends where you live. Because France, this this week, I think, has now um, has now passed and, and created a, a law to protect um, small and independent bookshops. I mean, almost specifically, almost against Amazon. I mean, it can't be; it's not against actual Amazon. It, it, in France, they they sort of set the price of books anyway, so you can't discount them. You can't do three for two or whatever it is. Mm. I think it's only a five percent um variation you're allowed to have so you're not allowed to have uh you know people selling books at half price or whatever um but but what um let's say online retailers can do what a certain one has been doing is saying that okay well, the postage is one centime or one centime mm. per euro or whatever and then uh independent bookshops can't compete with this because they said look it costs between six and seven euros for us to be able to send a book out you know to someone which they can do of course. Um, And so now they've created legislation which is going to come into effect next year to say that the postage uh, can't be less than, you know, it will Mm. be something probably like six or seven euros. So it's very, um, it's very, very protectionist, you know, and you think, oh, well, that's brilliant. But it's also quite expensive because then you're buying a book at... You know, at more or less full price, and you have to pay for the postage. So, but I, I don't know. I'd be interested to know whether books in France in general are a bit
1: cheaper than they are here, or not. Mm. Well, one um, of my prevailing memories in the side of, of living in Paris was trying and failing repeatedly to become a member of a library. <laughs> you probably didn't have the. Did you have the? Didn't have the right documentation yeah. or something.
2: <laughs> but it's 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 a gnarly old thing, isn't it? It's interesting. It is.
1: I mean, but just in general, the idea of legislation that would protect. Um, you know, uh, independent and smaller bookshops. I mean, it seems it seems like a wise, wise move, not only from an ethical perspective, but also from an economic one. I mean, I was I was floating about on the UK government website um, this That's morning true. and I found these, well, <laughs> I found, there was a reason. I found these statistics. So um, the 7,700 large businesses in the UK, and this is just general uh, large businesses, not, not bookshop related specifically, but oh. so... The large ones, So I guess we're talking about Amazon, but also Waterstones and other ones make a major contribution to employment and turnover. Nonetheless, small and medium enterprises. So that would be everything from your uh, one person run bookshop to a bookshop business that employs up to, I think, 250 people or something like that. But those account for three three-fifth, fifths, three fifths of employment. And around half of turnover in the UK private sector. So I know we're talking general, you know, generally about businesses there, not not bookshops only, but it still reflects, uh, you know, an important kind of distribution of 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 of, of, of the yeah. work and and what they do. So I don't know. It's 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 probably just worth giving it some kind of thought.
2: <laughs> well, we just we have such a different attitude. Apparently, the. Um the french uh minister for culture during one of the lockdowns sort of begged people not to buy books online <laughs>
1: mm.
2: <laughs> which you can't i mean i think said you know I, I don't know if they were allowed to say don't buy books from amazon but basically said that which you can't imagine
1: mm. uh,
2: i just i can't imagine that scenario
1: mm.
2: in many other countries put it that way
1: yeah i mean on a slightly lighter anecdotal point most of the members of the french government actually write books themselves whereas you look at our government and well,
2: well, they do. They do write books. I think it's more of a thing. In yeah, They've why? all got books out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> They've all got books out now because of the presidential election. So yeah, they course. all have to have a book out, which kind of, which uh, tells you something. Because Russell Williams was telling us about them, wasn't
1: he? In fact, we refer listeners back to an episode from a few weeks ago. Now, At a UN Climate Action Summit in 2019, Emmanuel Faber, CEO of Danone, one of the world's biggest food corporations, stood before an audience and said, we have been killing life and now we need to restore it. Monoculture farming was to blame, he emphasised, for endangering global food supplies by concentrating on growing a handful of plant species alone. This was a significant moment, notes the journalist Dan Saladino in his book Eating to Extinction, the world's rarest foods and why we need to save them. Until now, the focus had been on food production, how to make enough food to feed a growing population. But now, Fable was suggesting we apply ourselves to food diversity. If the businesses that helped create and spread homogeneity in our food are now voicing concerns over lost diversity, says Saladino, we should all take notice. It seemed, and it's difficult to overemphasize that word, it seemed like a turning point. In this week's TLS, Nikki Segnett, the author of The Flavor Thesaurus and Lateral Cooking, reviews Dan Saladino's book, and she joins us on the line now to tell us all about it. Hello, Nikki. Hi there. Hello. Um, So a year or so after the moment I just described, the, the Board of Danone submitted to shareholder pressure and pushed Faber out. And as will be clear to anyone with even the most cursory knowledge of, of, of food and farming, uh, Faber's Damascene conversion didn't lead to concerted, organised change at any kind of international level. But Dan Saladino's book offers something hopeful, you know, something of a, of a blueprint for how things could be changed before it's too late.
6: Yeah. What he gives us is. 34 stories divided into 10 sections and each and every one of them kind of cover a different angle of um what people are doing or what organizations are doing or have done to try and protect diversity in what we eat and what we drink as well the the book covers um some perry and wine and um, lambic beers and coffee as well so it's it's food and drink uh, yeah, and a, 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 a diverseer a group of ideas of what to do as there are um, foods that he mentions.
1: The foods and drinks that you mentioned there, coffee and so on, they're all pretty familiar to us. But there are there are plenty that will be well. They were certainly unfamiliar to me, and I think they'll be unfamiliar to most people. Things like Murnong, for instance. Yes, I haven't eaten a lot of mernong um,
6: <laughs> or or ochre or bear root. Yeah, there are some of the more some of the more kind of wilder things. In fact, actually, they, they I think quite a few of those do come in the wild chapter. Um, some of them are sort of more related, so things something like a Peruvian ochre, then. Um, Dan Saladino will use that as a way to talk to us about potatoes because they're they're sort of related. Sometimes the food is very rare and very unusual to us, but um, usually I think with nearly all of the thirty-four, not all of them, they're a way of talking about things that are much more familiar to us.
1: Um, I suppose you were particularly interested in 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 trying to imagine what things like Mernong might might taste like. Like uh, where well, he says it's a. It looks like a radish and tastes like a coconut, which sounds a bit like
6: something sounds out of a uh, um, Reeves and Mortimers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't say my mouth was watering, but there was a time when uh, people ate a lot of murnong, and um, and it just it was this very rampant root crop. Uh, and then when the English brought loads of sheep over to Australia, they just gobbled them all up, and so just, there was very few. And in fact, they were found by uh, a woman who created an Aboriginal garden um, and now they're kind of just as you can imagine a lot of the a lot of the foods that Dan Saladino is looking at are the kind of thing that are finding their way back into our kitchen through old foodways so you have people actually starting to bring back the Murnong so when you're next over there you might be able to if I can pick up that. some Mernong. Yeah, exactly. Some, there'll be Mernong crisps and Mernong mash <laughs> and all that kind of thing, I
2: imagine. <laughs> is, it, is it the same kind of movement as a heritage seeds, you think? Is that is that broadly the same kind of thing, which is trying to bring back some of the older varieties that might be more robust?
6: That's. I mean, that's very much part of it.
2: So, um, I mean,
6: he's what he does is he tends to, so he'll start with, Usually quite an obscure, either obscure to us or maybe quite a small crop, or a, a, a you know a food that has dwindled down to just being hold, hold, holding on by a thread, and then use that to um, digress into, if you like, usually quite a chronological history of um, that broader food family, if you like, touching on um, biologists and. You know, agriculturists, archaeologists, um, chefs who are particularly interested in traditional food ways and people who are, you know, who are seed saving. Um, I mean, really, uh, one of the big heroes of the book is a guy called Nikolai Vavilov, who has has inspired just generations of people to go out and collect seeds and save seeds. And Dan Saladino paints, you know, pictures of all these different seed banks all over the world. Um, that are kind of holding fabulous collections.
1: And I suppose the thing to emphasise is that it's not, you know, it's not about, uh, you know, bringing these things back because of some visual or taste quality necessarily, or, you know, some fancy or nostalgic sense that a heritage tomato is somehow better than uh, the average mass-grown one. It's it's about something much more important than that. I think there's um, there's a story that you you touch on which, um, he travels to Turkey and he 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 writes about this particular type of wheat. Yeah, or, or, I mean, yeah.
6: yeah, it's such a great chapter that. And in fact, a lot of the ser- the chapters in the cereal section are just so great. So he goes to the um, Anatolia and we find him standing in a. I don't know how to say this, so I'm just gonna. It's my best guess. Kalvika field, and that's a type of Emma wheat. And if you go back 10,000 years, most of the wheat that spread around the world was either emma or einkorn. Um, and einkorn was really, really hardy and emma was pretty hardy, but more productive. So they were and they tasted pretty good. So they kind of spread about. And then. Um, uh, yeah. And so we hear about him standing in this emma field, this particular type of emma called Cavlica. And how wonderful it is, and how the miller, you know, hardly anyone grows it anymore. But the miller loves it because whenever they cook with it in the village, it's delicious. And Dan, you know, describes this really wonderful sounding meal that he eats with it, cooked by somebody in the village. And we le- he leaves us there in the field with him when he takes us back into the story of wheat. And I mean, it's just fascinating. He's very, very good at being succinct and tight in his storytelling. So we hear about how. Um, uh how actually one of those wheats, the emma wheat um bred uh, rather cheekily bred itself on the side of the field he seems to suggest with something called goat face grass uh and that that type of wheat is the wheat that's now grown I think he says like a 95 percent of the wheat that we grow is now sort of derived from that particular um variant and um and in fact, that particular variant, it was uh, they tried it with modern fertilizers when they first came out, but it wouldn't it, it grew too much. It grew too high. And so nothing really happened there. It was you know, it, it obviously it was very successful. It wasn't really, but it wasn't like it is today until um, a chap over who's an American biologist in Japan uh, during, um, during the occupation discovered a dwarf wheat and he sent some seeds to the American Department of Agriculture, where they were picked up by a guy who was working on his own in a, uh, Salazino paints this great picture of it, in, in a really remote, rat-infested, broken-windowed Mexican research station, all on his own, breeding this dwarf wheat, trying to grow something that was shorter, with thicker stalks that could take advantage of these new fertilisers. He's putting a harness on himself and pulling his own plough, trying all these different things. And eventually he manages it and he creates this, well, he basically, this is the Green Revolution. He comes up with this kind of wheat that is just unstoppable, so popular, and actually does the thing that wins him the Nobel Peace Prize. It In 1970, it, um, you know, it stops a lot, a lot of people from starvation. Uh, and so, yeah. And, and so, you know, it, it, there you have this kind of very, clear story of how wheat has kind of got to the place that it did then but his name by the way is norman borlag i think and he he was um you know he was thinking that this would be a sort of 20 maybe 30 years at a push this you know that's how long you could do it for because really it was going to be very taxing on water and on fertilizer and uh, and what has turned out to be subsidies as well um and um yeah, but it's just so popular. People are still growing it and it's still 95% of the crop.
1: But the problem with that is that it, you know, it, you, you described it as unstoppable, but it is actually stoppable. It's, you know, it's 95% of, of the wheat production um, comes from that single strain, but it's extremely vulnerable to a disease that Kavilka, the, the ancient wheat that you, that you were talking about in Turkey, is, is much more uh, able to, to resist, and so that's, that's why it's so important to, to bring back uh, and, and, and farm grains such as kavilka, because they enable, um, they enable us to grow crops that resist things that others can't. That's right. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's because the kavilka,
6: where we were standing in the field in Anatolia, is an old emmer wheat, and actually the emmer wheats that's probably their centre of origin around that kind of part of the world – then those crops that are growing there, what's left of them, are full of genetic diversity, which would be very useful, given that 95% of the wheat that is being grown now has kind of quite a strong genetic overlap. And so should anything, it, it's kind of unstoppable as far as the demand for it in, you know, for, for corporate food and um, uh, from a human point of view but from a nature point of view like you say it is stoppable because you have um certain diseases that if they get into the crops i mean there's there's a couple of them around at the moment but if they get into the crops then they can stop a lot of them you know you end up with a massive catastrophe on your hands because Mm. you've got 95 95 percent of the crop susceptible to that thing Mm. uh
1: one, one of the which... one of the things is yeah one of the ones that you mentioned is is fusarium head blight or fhb which i mean it's a villain in in the tale but it, it it seems to deserve a bit of a spotlight purely because it's it's just amazing sounding i mean perhaps in large part because of of the way that saladino narrates it
6: yeah i mean he's really good at this he's got this um i mean a lot of the book i feel like there were times when it's watching like a late period david attenborough you know, it's very, very, the, the visuals are very clear and they're quite they're quite slowed down and they're quite, you know, sort of almost time lapsey in the way that he, he gets you to see something. So when he's talking about this fusarium head blight or FHB, it's a fungus that lies dormant in the field, by the way. And then what it does is it hitches a ride on raindrops to get into the wheat's ears. And Saladino says from here, it penetrates deep inside the plant where. By secreting an arsenal of proteins, the fungus gives itself an invisibility cloak. This allows it to bypass the plant's defences and travel hidden between the cells, spreading out. Then the fungus delivers its coup de grace. It, by releasing a chemical signal, it effectively causes the plant to commit suicide. Then it sucks
2: up the stored nutrients.
1: Now, it's really vivid, isn't it? It really is. I mean, you can it's, tell he's training us as a radio journalist, isn't it?
2: it shows actually even though like you say the the fhb is the villain it's also fascinating and another reason for the diversity is not just because you know crops are so um susceptible to maybe one particular disease but we can learn the, the this, they they do such odd things that we still don't understand so many plants that we can learn about how they reproduce or give themselves an invisibility cloak or you know all of these things
6: well yeah i mean <laughs> <coughs> excuse me At the beginning where we we come across the maze that is um, right up in the Mexican mountains, discovered um, by an American um, biologist who'd climbed thousand thousand meters and finds this type of maze that is dripping mucus from its kind of roots in the air. It's got roots in the in the ground and roots in the air and it's dripping mucus. And he starts to wonder whether it's actually feeding itself nitrogen from the air. And then that has, you know, that whole chapter ends with the possibilities that they're considering with that plant. So, I mean, it's, it's so you see what I mean about the, the David Attenborough side of it. It's kind of it does make you gasp and feel a bit mm. sort of childlike at the, yeah, at the
1: in, yeah, incredible nature. Mm. Marvel of it. I mean, it's true that if you say to, to, to most people, I'm reading a book on the modern global food system, they're probably not going to ask if they can borrow it as soon as you are done. But this one sounds like it might be quite different. Well, I'd
6: hope so, because I mean, it really does. It is two books in one. It is very interesting and very, I think, very inspiring and motivating uh, about the, you know, about endangered foods and and giving you ideas about what you might do about them. But it's also it's such a fantastic um, primer on how we got here and how, you know, chicken farming and pig farming and salmon farming and all of the each of them is an individual story where it's so clearly told, and he's got as i say it's that ra- he has taken his radio talent for making succinct compelling stories with lots of human interest in them to the you know to the page you can i mean some of them do i think come across a bit like uh you know he is the I think it's 10 years, he's like a presenter and producer of the food programme on BBC Radio 4. And it, it does feel like that. You know, some of them mm-hmm. are like episodes of that. And in fact, the book was originally called, and I don't know why it changed its name, but it was called uh, The Ark of Taste, after the slow food movement to protect endangered foods and drinks. And he was doing a section on the programme that was also called that, and that's where some of these stories come from. Mm.
1: Um, you, you talk about, um, I mean, just finally, um, y- you talk about feeling inspired by the book, um, which makes me wonder. I mean, is Saladino good at, at giving the individual a real sense of what they can do, changes that they can make, or, or do you still have an overriding sense of, well, it's in the hands of governments and and mega corporations?
6: Um, well. Uh... I mean, <laughs> excuse me. There's, you know, a lot of these books like this. Often, the worst chapter is the last chapter because it's, the, it's sort of you're you're waiting to be told what to do. And uh, what's great, I suppose, about this book is it's is it's all about what to do. So all of the chapters, so the thirty four stories, which are all all the, and all the sections, which are topped and tailed with little essays. We meet so many people who do such different things. So I think from a personal point of view, you're pretty clear from the get go that it's time to start just by not buying corn and rice and wheat, just having meals that aren't made of those three crops that now make up 50 percent of what everybody on the planet eats. Just that's three crops out of, I think he says, six thousand That we originally ate as human beings, we eat now 50% of our food comes from just three, and quite, I think it's 90% from nine. So, you know, by eating different foods, trying different things, buying from people who are small um, producers who are growing land, race, crops, um, support, you know, supporting people who are supporting diversity pushing corporations but i mean i did i went and wrote to a couple of people afterwards to ask them how they were um uh approaching this subject um and then you know then you get bigger and bigger you get people like uh unfortunately no longer with us but uh, a young man called desire levy who in south london was you know growing vegetables in his very small spaces and saving seeds and then sending them to people who asked for them in, a, in old utility bill envelopes repurposed. It was just, um, you know, and then there are bigger people. There are people who obviously go into this as their, you know, their line of work. I loved the man who was a building inspector and he went to uh, inspect a thatched roof to make sure that the right things were happening and found a matchbox full of sort of burnt rubble And passed it on to Oxford University and in doing so saved several lamb race crops, things that hadn't been seen for hundreds of years. So, you know, there are there are there are amazing ways that you can get involved, but you can, you know, you can also just go and buy a packet of peas.
1: (laughs) We're strongly suggesting that you don't.
6: (laughs) (laughs) You know, maybe some decent locally grown piece of a special variety yeah
1: exactly well maybe maybe pick up a copy of of this book and 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 feel inspired um nikki segnet thank you so much for talking to us
6: it's a pleasure thank you for inviting me
1: is all we have time for this week our thanks go to michael sherborne and nikki segnet thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by sophia franklin we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye